everyone to the Disco Posse podcast. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host today. Don't forget to keep following along. You can go to discopossepodcast.com, get show notes, links, and more. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. And with that, let's get started. And we are live, or at least live to tape, not to tape. We don't tape anymore. We're live to digital. Uh, thank you very much, folks, for listening. Uh, welcome back. My name is Eric Wright. I am the host here at the Disco Posse podcast. Uh, super happy today to extend a conversation I was lucky enough to start uh, very recently. I was, uh, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, if you're catching us pretty fresh, uh, IBM Think, which happens in the uh, early part of, of 2019 here, I was able to go uh, represent as part of the social media influencing community, and I, I met a bunch of amazing, amazing people, one of whom I'm proud to have on the show here today. Uh, let's just get started with that. I'd like to introduce, we've got Barney Lernis. Uh, so Barney, if you want to introduce yourself, tell us where we can find you online, and then we're going to talk about the human impact of AI, both positive and potentially challenging. Eric, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, um, my name is Barney Lernis. Um, I have recently formed a company called Humami.io. And the purpose of Humami is really to put humans, people, at the center of the design of the workplaces, uh, the future of work, and you know all, all of our working environments acknowledging the fact that all of our futures in some ways depend on how savvy and clever and smart we are about using technology and data and AI to fuel our businesses and the experiences around us. So the purpose of Humani is, is really to keep technology connected to the people that it's intended to serve and make sure that we're designing from a kind of human-centered point of view. Um, and uh, you can find me um, very much at, uh, at Barney Lowe, so B-A-R-N-E-Y-L-O on Twitter um, or on LinkedIn. Um, do reach out. I'm, I'm normally pretty receptive and responsive. It's, it's a really fun topic. And, and it was interesting, you know, as we, as we discussed before we got started, <clears throat> the interesting thing is audience of people that, that we bump into. Of course, you know, folks that are listening to the podcast here uh, quite often come from a virtualization background or, or an IT operations of some kind. We've got developers that are listening in and, and kind of everything in between uh, because we've covered a lot of different topics. That's why I thought it was a beautiful merger of things because the reason why I'm starting to spread and open up and sort of take the lid off the echo chamber, uh, you know, rather than just talking purely IT ops stuff, a lot of my folks that listen uh, get great feedback when they're like, hey, I loved this show that was nothing to do with what we normally talk about. And when we talked at the IBM Think event and like we listened to some of the stories that were being told there about how it's impacting, you know, getting people in through human resources and, and intake and continuous career management and understanding matching of people into the right roles and, and, and progression through their careers and how AI is starting to play a part in that. I 
I know that the people that are listening here are not in the job that they're going to die in, right? Like we are yeah. all going to switch at some point soon. Yeah. And a machine is going to help us get there. <laughs> you know, what, what are your thoughts, Barney, on like, I love that you've approached it, like the impact on humans and the human impact on technology. It's a beautiful bi-directional thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I'm actually not an HR professional nor a consultant. And, you know, um, and yet currently I find myself drawn into that world because I think in some ways for the last 20 years, um, a lot of businesses have focused on the customer and they focused on transforming their businesses and their communication channels, their service channels, their products. Um, to delight their customers. And I think we're, we're pretty good at that. Um, we're pretty good at building customer journeys and touch points that are personalized, um, that are convenient to, to customers. They happen at a time of their choosing, wherever they are on whatever device they're in. And, um, you know, I think that feels it pretty good. You've only got to have a look at some of the magical services around us, you know, the apps, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, you know, um, to realize that we've made an awful lot of progress. But I think when you take a step back and you think about, well, what's work like for me? Um, even occasionally, if you're drinking your first coffee in the morning or your last coffee at night, you think about, you know, am I in the right job? You know, am I reaching my full potential could I be working in a different industry or could I be rather than commuting through New York could I be working in Boulder Colorado for a better work-life balance um, those kind of questions I think are, are really meaningful and um, I think the reality is is that actually for a lot of people work is not working Right. The workplace is pretty screwed up. It's not sophisticated, even in sophisticated businesses. Um, and, you know, I think it's it, it, the time is right now for all businesses to, to actually drive growth by focusing on their employees first. And it's by focusing on their employees first that they're going to be able to unlock some, I mean, quite interesting potential around improving the experience for customers. Um, so that's what's brought me to this point. I've spent 20 years um, in digital transformations for large businesses, um, mainly consumers, some B2B businesses. Um, but my most recent experience at Mercer, which is a large HR consulting firm, really brought it home to me, not only just the opportunity for transforming our workplaces because fundamentally they're broken, but actually the opportunity to help individuals find more fulfilling work, uh, unlock potential uh, within themselves that they either knew that they had, but they didn't have time or access to the materials to develop, um, and really help people kind of fulfill various elements of their life, not all work-related at all. But I think, you know, what's interesting is when you piece this apart and you Think about the role that data plays in helping people make decisions around major pillars in their life, around health and wealth, maybe even love, but then career. Um, I think this is a super exciting area where definitely we rely on data 
to help us guide in some in some of the sort of key decisions that we make. And it's I like that the if you think over the business you've been involved in over the number of years, you know, we call it digital transformation, we call it, you know, whatever it happens to be, ultimately it's a people business you're in, right? You've always been in one. It's just a matter of the, the people are customers. The people are, you know, connecting developers to project managers. How do we, we increase the value of, of these interactions to make it move smoother, to be better? And as you said, like customer delight is the primary goal. Well, now let's turn that lens inward and customer delight is our own people, right? It's our own staff. It's our own personal relationships amongst each other in our peer group or in our family or, or all over. And I've, I've always believed that there's, there's this neat merger of like, I'm a, I'm a by feel person. I love doing things by feel, but I also then understand I like to research the data that got me there and to see if it matches up. And, and that's the, uh, so people who are frightened of data, you, you almost want to say like, no, you're, you, there's nothing to be afraid of. Like, in fact, you got to the right decision. You maybe we could have helped to confirm that for you. There's a lot of neat things in how technology can confirm and reaffirm a lot of the good things that are going on. And then maybe get a pass through some of the troubling decisions that we're stuck on. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you, you, you know, the ultimate goal is, is, is that data should be behind everything, but in front of nothing. Right. So, you know, when you think around the paradigms of, 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 of um, low-code development or something like that, the ability to drag and drop elements of a website visually and have the, the platform bring, bring up the HTML in the background, I think that's the right sort of paradigm for where we want to be going because I think a lot of our decisions in life, um, a lot of the simpler decisions in, in life we actually do, we, we use data um, to make a judgment of should I buy this car or that car. The comparison engines are a good example of easy to access at ways to use data to, to make relatively simple decisions. Um, but things around healthcare or things around retirement or things about am I in the job that I want to be doing, you know, is, is the kind of the value proposition good enough for me? Um, these are the really important decisions that have got huge ramifications over our life. And, and it's just bizarre in, in, to me that, we, um, that, that actually the sources we go to when we're making these decisions are you know, our family and friends and maybe Google. Um, and we ask other people's opinion. They give it to us and we sort of choose the thing that appeals to us most maybe rationally but actually almost always it's 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 our heart you know where our heart wants to go we will rationalize that that's the answer we want to go to but i think what's interesting is when you think about um jobs um you know mercer for example sits on a database of what every job in the world is paid in every city and it understands the quality and cost of living in every country and city in the world for the past 50 years it understands when people are going to fall ill and how much it's going to cost them when they fall ill and it understands when people uh, die and how much money they spend in retirement and how much money they need to to, to live uh, for as long as actually we're going to be expected to live in a few years time and with all of that data 
you can actually begin to model answers to questions like, I'm a project manager in the marketing industry in New York. Would I be better off if I transferred that skill set and moved to Boulder, Colorado or not? Now, there is an answer. There is an empirical answer to that question by the data that is readily available. And yet it's just not being surfaced to people to help them model that question or not. And I think, you know, that's what begins to excite me about the role of data in helping people make better decisions about the companies that they work for, um, fulfilling their ambitions for where they want to work for in the future, but also around kind of provoking ideas about how could you do what you're doing today better? How could you be a better me today and using data to help inform answering that question? Now, because we've got this, you know, as we slowly start to unlock more of that data and, and it's being used, in a sense, it's, it's always been there as like a parallel way to help companies, you know, make decisions. Uh, they still tended to be like, human first backed by you know confirmed by data then it was the stage where i believe we're at with a lot of things now is human in parallel where we're doing kind of like an idea meritocratic method like okay so the machine has has gone through these scenarios and models and it says this is a decision we should make the human agrees or disagrees and we can actually have like a okay we're gonna have to pick one or the other and then the next generation will be the machine will make a decision. And then we were, we are basically the, 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 the pin that gets pulled saying like, okay, careful. No, no, no. Like let's, let's actually stop before we proceed really like having the, the data drive the decision. It's interesting. I like the way you, you said that data should be behind things, not in front of it. It's, I think that's what people are kind of afraid of too, is like, as we, feel that machines are going to be making these or like software or AI or whatever it's going to be, you know, that, that they make decisions. There's a sense of a loss of control, but in fact, I believe it's unlocking the ability for you to make a true personal decision because you've got all of this data that can give you, you know, it can shorten the cycle to get to the right answer in, in my belief. Yeah. I think some of the language there is, uh, will make, as it were, that statement controversial. So I, I, I think in, in terms of allowing the machine to make the decision, that's a very controversial statement. Now, it's only controversial, however, you know, if you apply that to my intelligent lighting system in my house, and I say, well, should the machine decide at what time to turn the lights out? If it hasn't seen human movement in the house and it's 11 o'clock at night, should the machine decide? I could readily say yes. That's a really good, simple, example where machines should be able to take that independent sort of decision. When it comes to deciding for me what healthcare plan I should take, or when it comes to helping decide which candidates I should hire, I don't think the machine should be making those decisions. But I do think that the machine can merchandise options uh, in a way that um, improves the decision-making process of the individual. So I think you know, it can bring together a few options and it can present those options with some data-supported rationale. And it can provide some if this, then those, you know, if this, then that statements. 
And I think it can still fully empower the individual then, the human, to make a better decision that is more aligned with their needs. So I think, you know, there are many points at which you should clearly say, the machine shouldn't be making the decision. The machine can help me in the process of making better decisions by, um, you know, uh, distilling down vast amounts of information um, and um, presenting the best options for me. Um, but I think, you know, clearly, we're going to get more sophisticated about understanding about when machines can actually make decisions and when we're using them just to prepare decision making um, in the background. So I think, you know, one piece of this is in large consulting companies that, for example, do sit on a lot of data, I think we should be designing systems that enable not the consultants to make, you know, better decisions, but really you should put these tools in the hands of clients themselves to empower them to make decisions you know the consulting process has has been a slow one a it's expensive b it takes a long time to engage c then there's a long time to churn data and d you know you've the business has probably possibly moved on from a lot of those kind of big questions anyway by the time you get to make a decision i think the promise of sort of data-driven consulting is is that you can create systems that enable clients immediately when the impulse hits them to model, to surface, you know, to, to kind of search through that data themselves, to model different outcomes, to get a, to a deeper level of fidelity about the problem that they're trying to solve. And then they can pick up the phone and speak to someone, a consultant, and say, listen, I'm getting really close to this kind of interesting insight about my business. How can you help me sort of cross that last mile? And so, I, uh, again, I, don't, I think that should be empowering for any consulting company. I don't think it should be a threat. Um, but I do think, um, you know, ultimately, that's not allowing the machines to make the decision. It's just allowing us to get to a better definition of framing the business opportunity or problem and um, and then allowing people to sit around and, and, and think about alternative solutions. A good thing that I, I always like to highlight is when we get in, especially into ethical discussions, and especially when you're doing a decision, you know, using decision engines, <clears throat> it's the, the sort of sense of like amount of disclosure of how those decisions get made. When as a human, you just kind of like, all right, well, I, he's my financial advisor and, and you know, his disclosures have to be that he owns some of the stock he's suggesting I should buy. You know, even, just to speak on disclosures quickly too. So you and I were at the IBM Think event. We were we were brought there in part, you know, provided free passes by, uh, you know, I, or at least I was anyway. So you know, by the IBM social media team in order to attend the event and and talk about things. But ultimately, you know, what we're there for is to provide color and commentary on on what we saw and and provide them with feedback. So there's the neat thing. Like if I then talk about something. I have the disclosure responsibility to say I was brought here on a free pass, but I'm here of my own volition otherwise, and this is my opinion. So when you have the data-backed decisions, do you believe, Barney, like, is there going to be a point where companies there are going to have to say this was a data-backed decision or this was a system-generated decision that I agree with? Like, where do you think that those ethical things start to bump into where we have to say where the data and decision is coming from. 
Yeah, I, I believe in all of that, Eric, definitely. Um, I think, you know, the litmus test is, um, you, you know, even when you're dealing with people, you don't want to be manipulated by uh, ulterior motives. I mean, in the way that you're being describing the relationship with IBM, I mean, you want people to understand about how you got there and you know why you're talking so much about these topics i mean that's fine but people then can understand why you're there and um form their own judgments on it i think the transparency um uh you know criteria is is the number is the most important thing for us to be to hold true um is is to be as transparent as possible um, in terms of what we're seeing or experiencing and what sits behind it. So what are the sources of data, how they've been validated, um, and how, how they've been pulled together to present to us what we're seeing. Um, I think then people are fully informed and empowered to uh, take, therefore, the results very seriously or less seriously. Um, but I think, you know, that transparency thing is is so important. The interesting thing, I think, which is another sort of ethical or, or just a general challenge we're facing right now is that using AI and machine learning and, and using models, there's, especially when it comes to like human decisions, right? We think about, you know, challenges around representing diversity in the workforce, diversity of, of folks that are involved from whatever whatever measure of diversity you want to apply. And then there's this concern that if we're using data that's led us up to this point and we've had difficulty in representing, you know, this diversity well, that in fact we've now been, we're going to train the machine to make decisions that have historically been, you know, biased or leaning. And this is, it's, it's a weird, I mean, I'm, I love the idea that we can actually now we can, the system should be able to ultimately be shown that, like you said, this transparency, this is the data that drove this decision. Here's the models that we use to generate it. But then the fun part is now we've got this, this sort of sticking point where they said like, well, we can't let humans make the new systems because the humans are broken. Like, well, so, someone's got to make the systems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that, um, technology and data can only take you so far. Um, I mean, as a parallel industry, um, if you think about marketing technology and, and sort of advertising technology, um, it's got super sophisticated, um, but it's also got super expensive and whilst the tools get better and better and easier to use in order to deliver the right message to the right person at the right time to generate an impactful message, some of the cost of that is now so exorbitant that it's almost cost prohibitive and the complexity that you've got to go through in order to instrument the system in the right way is, is just too much. Um, you're, you know, so much so that you could almost put technology on one side and, and, and come back to basics. I think when you looking at people, employees and, and, and humans and thinking about 
do I take my gut feel and interview people as we've always done? Um, or do I go the opposite direction and ask them to complete a set of assessments and let the computers, let the machines make the decisions? You know, what do you want to do? For me, it's pretty obvious. Quite clearly, it's going to be at some, some sort of place in the middle. And I think that's important. You know, it's going to not be at either extreme. I, I think a lot of us are kind of interested in better understanding who we are as people, in clarifying what are the values that really matter most to us, at having a crisper definition of what are our underlying aptitudes and how do they compare with you know, people like me or my colleagues or um, you know, people who live in the same zip code? We're under, I think people are, like to have a little bit more of an objective articulation of who they are, what their underlying strengths are, and, and how they compare with other people kind of like them. I think that really helps people um, develop themselves so I think there's a, there is a self-interest in becoming a little bit more data-driven when it comes to finding work and developing our careers. Similarly, I think from a company's point of view, whilst you don't want to go to a pure AI-driven recruitment process, I think there are elements that companies also have got value sets and cultural fit sets. And... Um, you know, they too can better understand who they are and they can scale better and they can improve the way that they bring the right sort of people with a shared set of values into the business. And then I think companies using data um, can sort of structure those learning platforms as IBM is doing that helps people um, you know, develop their own training and development um, paths that are suited to their specific skills and their specific roles, as well as surfacing uh, content topics, development ideas that could fulfill those individuals' um, kind of softer, more peripheral needs. So I think, you know, that's very exciting. And, and every company has got to figure out how can it just use a little bit of technology to improve where it is today to where it's going tomorrow. It doesn't have to transform the whole big thing, but just begin to be a little bit more scientific about that craft of identifying the right people and be, again, a little bit more mindful and structured about the way that it empowers its people to then develop themselves in the directions that they want to go. I think all of that is great news. I mean, not notwithstanding there are kind of ethical issues that we that definitely need to have a kind of a code of conduct around um, but I think if companies take these things step by step and are very sort of transparent about what they're doing and I think you know that audit check on was it wasn't it Amazon who put their hands up and sort of said, wait a minute, our <laughs> right. anti-bias recruiting machine that was supposed to kind of eliminate unconscious bias is in fact teaching itself to be biased. I mean, I think that just sort of says, you know, just clarifies you know, for us that 
you've always got a hypothesis, have a hypothesis of what you're trying to do. You've always got to have data points that will then demonstrate if that's true or not. And then you've always got to flush out, well, did that happen or didn't it? So I think, you know, those elements, you know, I think it was great that they came out and, and kind of were super transparent about the fact that the machine, you know, had misbehaved. Yeah, what it's, and it's funny, I guess it, it also depends on the, the guardrails and boundaries in which we unleash a system, right? If you think about recruitment and things like that, there's, it's a very specific, you know, bound set of data, it's a bound set of performance tasks that it'll do, versus if you take an, an ML or an, an AI bot and you set it free on Twitter, <clears throat> within 20 minutes, it'll be screaming racial epithets. Like it's, it's just because the nature of this, there's this terrifying conversation that's going out in the world that you don't, you don't expose yourself to, but the machine, if it goes out to seek, seek everything, it's going to find information it probably shouldn't. But in the nice tight bound where we have, like you said, clear transparency on what data led it to this decision, an understanding of the breakers and the checks and the audits throughout the process, you know, I like that in using systems to define, you know, decision automation, we've forced the need to be very transparent versus in the past, it was very opaque, right? It was, we, we sort of were, were screaming for transparency as we bring a system in. And then you start to say like, but wait a second, we had no idea how this was done. It was completely being done with you know supposedly rational you know human decisions but it's like i do like that in having to teach a machine to make a decision you have to define the algorithm define the the formula by which it makes it a decision or at least guides towards a decision you suddenly have to stop and say okay well wait a second where are the trigger points where we could have difficulty you know it's i'm excited by it but i also know like it's a it's a slow transition. Even if I look, you know, ten years ago, I remember the the point of concern when social media became you know vastly popular, and there was problems in human resources organizations where they said, well, are they ethically or legally allowed to go searching your social media if it's public facing, and have it influence the decision of whether they should hire you. You know, and it was an interesting thing where, like now, I think it's probably by default. Everybody assumes if you're writing stuff on social media, you know, guess what? It's public. Uh, you know, and now there's sort of an understanding of transparency that it will influence potentially a decision about your hireability or or something like that. Versus again, as it first came in, it was this sort of frightening, scary thing, and and the regulations I think took a while to catch up to how this sort of thing could actually influence uh, you know, a hiring decision or uh, you know, some other decision of whether someone's gonna get an apartment or, or a car or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> um, you know, for most people, okay, but for some people it's been quite shocking and, and, and scary, I think, as they, as they become more aware of the impacts of their actions. You know, I think, you know, what you were saying there, Eric, was it just reminded me of, you know, teaching good AI and machine learning is just like being a parent. You know, you don't allow the machine to go into some deep, deep, dark holes in order to sort of educate itself. You know, you very, very much need to sort of create boundaries. 
And as a parent, you know, you also know that you are totally fallible. So the, the assumptions that you're making around the rules you're putting down doesn't mean they're the right rules at all. So I think there's a, you know, that sense that it, it's not just the machines that might go kind of off rail. It's also the human inputs in the first place which could go off rail and themselves need validating. And I think, you know, this brings us sort of full circle in some ways to, to my particular interest in the role of kind of AI in the employee experience and helping people drive kind of successful careers is that actually a lot of the lessons that we've learned during the kind of digital, the first 20, 25 years of the digital revolution has been that success comes when you've got a broad collaborative palette of the data scientists, the DevOps, the kind of UX people, the in marketers and the insights crew, and that proximity to the end user, be they the customer or the client or whoever they are, but you know, to design systems, tools, platforms, products that are successful, you can only do it when you're getting a broad collection of input from around the table um, and using all of that input to kind of co-create a, a, a platform, co-create and you know, develop in real time and optimize in real time. Um, and I think, interestingly, within the kind of the HR group at the moment, there has not been that diversity of collaboration. It's very much been an HR endeavor um, to sort of reduce costs in HR and sort of simplify, you know, the, the, the transformation of HR in large part has been driven by a cost-cutting exercise and not by an exercise that is really focused on employees and getting the right people into the business who can drive growth and then in providing an amazing learning and collaborative experience for those individuals in the business. And I think we're now just coming to that point with design thinking and agile and sort of a much richer um, layer of data and AI coming into sort of HR. We're beginning to sort of uh, have a lot more fun and, and, and be a lot more uh, meaningful in, in the work and the solutions that, that are being brought to the table. Yeah, I really like the idea that we're, we're moving to things that have a, a higher second and third order value and consequence, yeah. right? It's, it, we, we realize now that we've systemized a lot of the things we do, how much effort was spent on you know mundane repetitive things or things that really did and it's it's funny that here we are you know we we've kind of gotten a lot of that stuff systemized and then you say like i'm still got a full day like wait a second how, <laughs> how did i ever get this done before and you realize there were things that were not getting done it's not that we were doing it wrong but maybe there was a, a lot of missed opportunities and and so now we can really move to this you know, like you said, what's what second and third order consequence of value that we can do? So if I can do something now that has the uh, now as a network effect on how it can profoundly affect the futures of people, and that's really what it is. And you know, and I'm excited by that chance because if you think of especially you know matching people up for you know project groups, and and I'm I do a lot of open source communities, and it's a lot of it has to be, it's fairly self-selecting, but then when you look backwards on 
how that self-selection occurred. In fact, there's a lot of criteria that made it very easy to do. So I'd love to kind of like, can we take those criteria and those measurements and that data to help feed a, a closed team and say like, okay, so if you needed to source a new person for this team, here's where this, you know, really large project has succeeded in, you know, the, the diversity of, of voice that they needed, like they needed a data scientist, they needed a developer, they needed somebody who understood Python, they needed somebody who could know how to do user experience and UI. You know, how did those people come together? And as we look, you know, historically and say like, okay, so this is now an algorithmic approach to finding some of that criteria. It's so cool because now I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm concerned sometimes that we, if we, like you said, if you take the human out of it, that's dangerous because we, we cannot just like say, okay, the decision's been made. But I, I just love the idea. And find that, so one thing that came up at the IBM event is one of their examples. They said they introduced, you know, uh, machine learning and AI into one of the call centers. And the example they talked about on stage was that somebody, they had listened to, you know, thousands upon thousands of calls to train it on how to answer certain questions. And then at the end of the call, that was 100% done by this, by Watson. Yeah. It, it said, is there anything else that I can help you with today? And you know, they said, like, they, no one told it to do that. It wasn't built into a script. It had figured out that through thousands of interactions that that was a, a good thing to do. And the response they said was hilarious because the, you know, the person on the line said, no, thank you. But I just want to say, it's so great to finally talk to a human. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, Oh, the irony of it all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, human fallibility is, is, is very much a kind of, um, well, you know, that's been the lifeblood of, of human resources or hiring, getting the right people into a business in the first place, you know, is, is that on, on, even on the best of days, all of us, you know, the, even the, um, uh, are kind of fallible. And there are kind of interactions now uh, across digital channels that, that can, can be beautifully managed, perfectly managed. Um, by some of these well-trained bots. Um, I think that's, you know, that's, that should be celebrated. I mean, take it for what it is, you know, as long as you know it's a bot, as long as you're not being fooled. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's, that's really like the transparency when you talked about that before. And I think this, like anybody that we talk to that's, that's really leaning towards this type of, of, you know, anything in data science and AI and ML, you definitely hear this beautiful pairing of like transparency is one of the most important pairings to that. Because like you said, if, if you've got a, if you're being answered by a bot, then it should be, you should be made aware that ultimately that's, that's who you're talking to. Most people, and I say this as a dangerous thing for me too, it's the curse of knowledge. I know how the back end systems work. So I'm, I'm almost always assuming it is a bot. And when it actually answers me in a different way, I'm like, oh, wait, this is actually a legit person. <laughs> yeah. So, but a lot of people may not realize that they're actually being, you know, handled and, and, and conversing with a machine. Um, so it, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I, and I like that we're humanizing these things to have them ask questions that are maybe not directly important to the conversation, like actually make people feel comfortable. There's, there's a, an importance to that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the emotional layer in 
all of this is just incredibly uh, important. And um, I think making people feel more comfortable and, and you know, using that discipline of, of understanding who you're designing for and how would you like them to feel and think after that interaction. I mean, you know, that's just, you could call that courtesy and common manners, right? You know, that is how you normally, those are the things you're normally thinking about in the customer service operation, thinking, or in any relationship building. You're trying to understand how you can give someone what they need, make them smile, um, have a positive impact on, on their life. And I think, as I say, I think a lot of these business systems have been designed without a design target, really. They are functional things that are either stripping costs out of the business or making a process more efficient. You know, almost the design target is the process. Sometimes that's good enough, but very often I think we forget the human at the other end of that process. And I think, um, you know, that's where the design thinkers, where the, the copywriters, where the insights people can help infuse some of the kind of the digital platforms with some magic and humanity and, and kind of consideration for, for those people who are going to be impacted by them. And I think it's that craft that will really create powerful interactions. Um, I think we're, you know, and in the HR realm i i'd suggest we're at the relatively early stages of that i think in the customer realm we're getting a lot more sophisticated yeah and i think the i maybe it's just sheer numbers that there's it's much easier to test measure and experience like the customer facing experience versus you know putting putting a human into a into a job role or into a team or or making a decision about their placement in something or whatever it's there's not as there's just isn't as many experiences that can be measured and mapped versus any company is you know thousands fold real comparison of customer interactions versus their internal interactions so it's well, you say that but i think that is not true at all you have employees in your building for the best part of their day and their life, right? So employees with you in their workplace for at least eight hours a day and probably more. And they are almost throughout that time connected to the organization by some digital device. Some people are by definition connected to a digital device for every moment of their life. You know, they, they've got the computer in front of them. You can see exactly what they're doing, who they're writing to, who they're calling, how much of their day is spent doing meetings, what content they're using, who they're sharing it with. Are they sharing it with only men or only women or only people from their office or internally or, or with clients? you can tell how far their networks and their professional networks extend to and, and how that maps against the most successful people in their roles. There is all sorts of workplace data and people-related data that exists on an ongoing, you know, the, the, that kind of data footprint that people are leaving on an ongoing basis. And I think, you, you know, increasingly when you look at... Mm, 
more uh, woke companies, you know, sort of younger companies, dynamic companies, they're using tools like Culture Amp or, or Glint or 15.5 to develop much more real-time feedback with their employees and to have a much more sort of real-time assessment of their performance against their key objectives. Have you, are you familiar with any of those tools? Yeah, it's fun. Only, only uh, you. Uh, I'd heard of fifteen five, and I think I actually, I think it was actually from our discussion <laughs> right. yeah, that. And and I started to dig in a bit, and it, this is an exciting area because I, I really, really like where the potential is for this. Rather than creating like an HR shouldn't be a system of record; it should be a system of behavior. Uh, and I, I love the movement towards using these behavioral measurement systems and feedback systems. It's not just meant to measure, it's bi-directional measurement. Like you can tell it, I believe that we are doing things right or wrong here and, and it can help to influence how people measure a, a cultural health uh, in an organization. But yeah, no, so share some more of those, of your experiences on that, Barney, I know you. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, I think the best sign of whether these are interesting platforms or not is, you know, can you find people who will advocate for them? And without a doubt on, you know, whether it's kind of Office Vibe, Seven Geese, Culture Amp, Glimp 15.5, you know, there are a number of these different platforms that do slightly different things. One theme is around continual feedback and kind of that, that traditional notion of employee engagement. So what are people thinking? Do they like this? Do they like that? How can we improve the business environment for them? Um, then there are kind of more performance management tools, but performance management in a kind of, in a positive way, um, ways for people to clarify with their managers, you know, what their kind of key objectives are and to sort of check in on how they're doing and to be publicly um, recognized for some, you know, for teams to be publicly recognized for what they're doing. These are things that make people feel good. These are things that um, make people want to come to work and make them want to work even harder. And, and um, you know, so these are tools that are helping people kind of be better managers and helping the organization communicate more clearly and be ranked on how clear it is. <laughs> you know, it's transparent whether it's, it's being successful or not. Not just That's about, right. well, I communicated that, but you can actually see that did people understand it and was that enough? And so you talk to managers, you talk to employees who are using these tools and they love it. They love it without any qualification whatsoever. And these tools are sort of also transparent. You know, they, anyone can access them to see the results and what's going on. So there's a level of comfort that you're not over-instrumenting the business in a big brother way. But that's also another sort of set of data that you can use against not only the business results, but also, as I say, you know, the workforce analytics that's available to us. So I think it's surprising when you actually take a step back and say, wait a minute, there are more data points about our workforce than there are even about our customers. And do you know what, you know, I can, I can talk, you know, customer insight is sort of sometimes hard to get because you've got to send people out into the field to get their feedback. I mean, your employee insight, I mean, you, you're surrounded by it. So it's just what's shocking to me is how bad business is at intentionally using all of that data that's available to it, 
all of those best practices about structuring better communications and holding yourself accountable for how successful they are. So few people are doing it. But I, I think the promise of, you know, the, the, but we're just getting to that stage where it's going to become more and more prevalent and more and more productive, I think. Yeah, well, it's funny that it's, you really, you opened my eyes to remind me of something. Yeah, it's funny, if, if you look at it a certain way, you realize, you know, so customer interactions are typically done for two reasons. One, getting a customer. Two, keeping a customer who's about to go away. So you're either convincing them you've, you're great or convincing them that you're better than something else that they're about to leave for. Like the, the interactions are typically very negative. So they're coming back, you go to a call center because something's gone wrong. You don't call your call center and say like, hey, super happy with your product. I just wanted to share that with you and, and especially thank my sales rep you know, <laughs> for introducing me to your company. No, you've, that's not going to be in the model <laughs> versus like I've used seven geese for OKR stuff and, and I'm a huge fan of objectives and key results uh, for folks that have read measure what matters by John Doerr and, and looked at, at how that came in. Um, it's, it's a phenomenal thing. There's lots of stuff around OKRs. And like you said, it's based in transparency so that you can actually have both the positive and the difficult interactions that are being measured transparently and fully available to people. And I've shown that in my own work history, the more transparent you are about what drives decisions, what drives changes, what, what drives the day-to-day -day in an organization, the much more uh, an increased sense of belonging is created for those team members because they feel that even if they can't necessarily influence it, they understand these decisions and then they know in other areas where they actually can influence potentially the outcome of of a team or a product or a business or or something it's it, it's pretty cool and i hope that more companies move towards that instead of the traditional like okay it's the end of the year barney how did your year go and, <laughs> and you sit there and all you can remember is the last month so you make up a bunch of things that probably weren't actually on your your goal sheet for the year and then you do find your old goal sheet and you're like wow this project died in june so i don't even know why i'm measuring it now versus okrs are very continuous interactive transparent process and, and yeah and it's crazy it is absolutely crazy for me you, you know where the greatest business people in the world trying to build relationships with their customers and drive the performance of their business about how you know blunt the current tools for measuring performance and understanding what drives that performance and then really focusing on coaching people and teams in a scientific way you know when you think about how sophisticated sports teams or dancers are coached it's you know, why wouldn't you take that same attention to detail to really refining the interactions of your team to be the best kind of, you know, performers that they can be? So I, I think these tools, you know, you start off with a few additional data points, you understand exactly whether those are the right data points to be capturing, you can understand how providing people with feedback about how to improve their performance 
on an incremental basis get better and better and better. They will never stop and better, you know, um, and see what's the right solution for their business is, is um, very positive. The other thing I think is interesting in the kind of changing nature of the future of work landscape and the gig economy is coming back to a point you were making earlier, Eric, about being able to manage a complex set of resources in a more fluid way. So that could be just a open source network of collaborators, or it could be a workforce of people across multiple geographies. Um, um, and um, yeah, and it's with the, that complexity, we don't even really, we fail to see the complexity that's in even the simplest appearance of systems. like. Like you said, especially gig economy, you've got an incredibly diverse potential workforce and you've got geographically diverse, you've got different regulatory things to account for. There's like so many things. And, and in fact, if we think that we could ever apply a traditional forced guardrail system on, on that and thrust these traditional methods on it, you know it's just dead from the start. <laughs> yeah, and I think sort of companies are beginning to, you know, once they have got, once they look at the people in their business and they think about providing those people with opportunities that those people almost self-elect themselves into, you know, work becomes more like a marketplace of opportunities rather than I'm doing this because my boss told me to. Um, and... Um, you know, by categorizing people in terms of their skill sets, their length of experience, their kind of their collaboration sort of type, um, you know, I think you can help form teams on specific projects very, very quickly. And whether those are internal colleagues or a blend of internal and external kind of gig workers, but I think being a little bit more sophisticated about the way that we're we're becoming almost individuals with a blockchain of That's skills right. and aptitudes and experience that can follow us around that are kind of beacons to potential opportunities within our workplace or our network because people can find us because we can demonstrably you know we've demonstrably got the skills that they're looking for i think those sorts of things are very exciting i know schneider electric is beginning to develop more of an internal marketplace in terms of how they allocate resources. Um, and I think, um, you know, that, that, that's exciting for, for everyone, I think, uh, at work. It definitely, it creates incredible opportunities, at the very least, to do what we're doing incrementally better. And it has the potential to exponentially, or at least on a, some multiple level, increase the way in which people can get value from interactions. And if I think of you know, one of the, the books and, and sort of folks that I, I, I read a lot of and studied a lot is, um, you, know, you, you, you look at like Eli Goldratt and the idea of theory of constraints and, and those type of things. And my favorite thing I said, he says, tell me how you measure me and I will tell you how I will behave. Right. But, the difference in the use of these systems, it is not, it's not about measurements for the purposes of increasing your flow. It's increasing the value of your day-to-day -day, and flow is actually the second order consequence of making your day-to-day -day better. And, and I, I believe truly is as we look at the human potential and unlocking that human potential, like the system, obviously there's measurement. Obviously there are, you know, 
You're going to handle more emails in a day. You're going to answer more customer calls. You're going to, those are things, but if you can't find the right person to do the right thing and excite them about what they're doing, create better interactions, better teams, then you, if you're simply saying, I need to do 120 calls a day, that, that's to go from 120 to 125, that's the wrong measurements. It's, there's a qualitative piece that this is where the merger of, of what you're talking about and what you're doing is, is incredibly important. It's a beautiful match of you know, quantitative proof based on qualitative improvements. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as we've said, the, 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 way, um, the way to get there is to keep people, employees at the very center of that design architecture. Um, and that will help you, you know, ensure that you're measuring the right things and pursuing uh, the right things. Exciting times. Well, we're, we're bumping up to, to the end of the show here, Barney. I want to thank you very much. This has been an incredible pleasure. Uh, I, I would definitely encourage folks to, to keep an eye on, on all things that you've done and, and are doing. Uh, what's the best way, again, for folks to, to find you online and, and, and interact and, and hear about stuff that you're working on? Yeah, find me online or on Twitter. I'm, I'm there every day. I'm at Barney Lowe, B-A-R-N-L-O. Uh, please connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to, um, to chat with you. Um, and um, yeah, thank you very much, Eric, for the opportunity. It was a great discussion. If I had eight hours to record, I would spend all eight of them. Uh, we, could, we could go on. Well, definitely, I, well, we'll talk in the future as, as, things, as things come up. I'm very excited about all the work you're doing. So thanks for taking the time today. Thank you so much, Eric. You're listening to Today's Cool Palsy Podcast.